0: The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. On Wednesday, Canada joined the long list of nations grounding the Boeing 737 MAX 8 jet, the same type of aircraft that was involved in last weekend's Ethiopian Airlines crash. Transport Minister Mark Garneau announced until further notice the Boeing 737 would no longer be used for flights or be allowed to fly in Canada's airspace. He said, his decision was based on new information, pointing to a link between this incident and the other deadly crash involving the same plane in Indonesia last October. Joining Libby's Zneimer to discuss Garneau's decision, John Lawford, the executive director and general counsel at the Public Interest Advocacy Center, and MP Brian Massey, the dean of the NDP caucus and former air passenger rights advocate.
2: The fact is that these planes Um, literally couldn't fly in many places of the world anymore without restrictions or being outright banned. In fact, the United States and Canada were outliers in this. So unfortunately, everything seems to be a fight with um, this government um, to get consumers and to get people protected, whether it's the um, Passenger Bill of Rights or whether it's um you know transportation on rail safety or even in this particular circumstance uh the canadians um you know who have suffered the the greatest losses here being the families friends and relatives um and then the general public uh have had to um voice their concerns extraordinarily uh sharp uh to get movement but the reality is is that you know the minister claims that satellite imagery gives him new information that he then gave all kinds of disclaimers about that imagery. But, um, you know, people are uncomfortable with the situation for a lot of good reasons. And, um, you know, the reality is, at the end of the day, though, is the plane really can't fly anywhere um, other than the United States and Canada. And so it's just, it's beyond me why everything has to be a fight. Um, This really should have been something to show confidence. And second to that, I I think that um, the public is unnecessarily having to again, come forward uh, during hurtful times to get what you know, they should have been expecting to get is you know a cautionary principle with regards to this, especially given the long list of countries that wanted action, took action, and actually didn't have their citizens have to have an uproar to, to get the solution they wanted.
3: Uh, John Lawford, do you agree that this is the result of pressure and not the result of, and I put this in my little air quotes, new information?
4: Well, I'll take the minister at his word that that's why they decided to change their mind this morning, but I won't doubt that Canadians had a pretty good reason for wanting this done far sooner. And it's true, we were a total global outlier. Uh, You know, you you had the UK, you had Europe, you had all sorts of places coming to this conclusion much more quickly, and if they did share information, and they do, then it makes you wonder what the standard is in Canada and why it's different. You know, I think consumers can't be told that You know, we're investigating, you can trust Transport Canada, we're professional, as the minister said a few minutes ago, because that's not their first concern. Their first concern is, don't play with my life. And that has always been the answer that we've received from Transport Canada when we want uh, things done. They're always like, safety is the most important thing, and that's not negotiable, and and yet, in this sort of time, it, it looks like it is.
3: They came out and said, hey, it's not because of safety. No, 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 it's because other countries won't let us land there.
4: Yeah, they they weren't able to go anywhere, so what use for their planes? So, um, But you see, even Sunwing then was towing the line um, between the industry, the ministry in Canada, and the FAA, which is, until the FAA decides that this thing is not flying, we're not going to say nothing about whether it's airworthy or not. And I'm not prejudging whether there, this accident was related to the one in Indonesia, or what the what the problem was. But the public perception, I think this, unfortunately, the minister was not in tune with it, and people had a you know a, a reasonable concern. And now they're they're stuck, and there will be disruptions. But it's better to have a government that looks like they're on top of it than one that you know seems to come to realization after people have to yell at them.
2: You know, to me again, it's um Uh, It's going to be a lot of attention paid to this, and, and I think there should be some good government oversight because it affects the nation's economy. Um, it affects the um, the people of our country to stay in touch with family friends, loved ones uh, during times of celebration, but also times of sadness uh, for visiting uh, relatives who are ill or you know to attend things that aren't the, the this, you know the best of things and circumstances. So all those factors come together that this is a privilege to operate in Canadian airspace and over Canadians' homes and businesses and um, to do a service. and we want them to be successful. We want them to be strong, but we want them to be safe first.
3: Mr. Lawford, do you have anything you'd like to leave us with?
2: That, you know, this is, this is a crisis that got big fast.
4: And I appreciate that the transport folks um, want to be careful and, and keep the system running and are thinking about all sorts of considerations. But top line in dealing with consumers, you can't just ignore us. You know, you've got to come to consumers and, and, and have some communication. I didn't see a lot of that on the front end of this. And this is what you get at the end, a lot of confusion and, and backfilling.
1: That was John Lawford from the Public Interest Advocacy Center and Passenger Rights Advocate, NDP MP Brian Massey. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Most travelers were relieved when the authorities in Canada and the U.S. grounded the MAX 8, the same plane involved in last weekend's crash in Ethiopia. But there is also the inconvenience of the decision with canceled and delayed flights, especially as March break comes to an end. Airline representatives have been scrambling to rebook passengers and move forward. But how long will the disruption last? On Thursday, Libby spoke with Mary-Jane Hebert, who is the chairman, of the Association of Canadian Travel Agencies.
5: At this point of the of the process, uh, we're still learning a lot of what's going on. We we've heard from the airlines as far as WestJet and uh, Air Canada within Canada as to rebooking policies, refund policies, um, but we have not had too many. Uh, Communications about who's canceled, what's canceled, what's rebooked, et cetera, et cetera. I think that they're still coming to terms and dealing with all of that because it's quite a problem for them.
3: The numbers, I mean, the percentage of the fleet is pretty small. True. Uh, So WestJet said that it would affect about 1,400 customers daily, Air Canada said between 9,000 and 12,000, but it is March break.
5: You know, I, I th- uh, definitely there's going to be people impacted with their March break holiday. Um, I, w- I would think, however, that a lot or the majority of those people who are booked to travel during the March break are on a charter aircraft, perhaps with Signature, Wing, Transat, uh, who do not... Um, operate that plane to these destinations, let's say going south to Mexico or Dominican or those kinds of places. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that is the case and that the majority of those spring breakers will still be able to, to travel as they have been um, you know, inclined to do. Uh, what will happen, I think that the most unfortunate thing is for the people that are impacted today, tomorrow, and in the next week because that's the uncertainty.
3: I think people to a certain extent understand that, you know, everybody's in chaos because of this. Right. I agree. I've seen some speculation that it that it's going to go on for months, but you mm-hmm. have no idea now.
5: All right. And so I'm I'm hopeful that the airlines are um you know, making changes to all of their routing as far as their the aircraft that's being assigned. And I'm sure that they're doing that. The other challenge that they will be facing is that not all airline employees or so attendants and pilots are trained on every aircraft. So that is going to be an additional problem that they're going to have to face as far as scheduling.
3: I'm going to ask a, a personal uh, question here. So I'm planning to fly in about a month. I hadn't booked it yet. Do you recommend that I get on and try to book it right away, or should I wait a bit? I would have no problems booking right away. Okay, booking the sooner the better. Usually, when it comes to booking,
5: it is for sure as far as cost. Uh, but I, I would think that uh, they're, you know, they're doing everything in the, it, that they can possibly to have. New aircraft assigned for the next few months that that probably has been done already. I think what is more concerning is if this lasts six months what what then? Well, I would have no problems booking uh, right now
3: and going forward, I mean five thousand of these planes are on order. Mm. Are we just going to forget about it? Presumably they will find some kind of a, a
5: patch they 're already working on a software patch. Well, you know, I can't imagine that they're not going to find a, a positive resolution to this situation. I mean, there's a lot at stake for Boeing and for the, for the airline industry as a whole. So I'm I'm quite hopeful that very shortly we'll, they'll have some resolution, and and hopefully this problem does not escalate and does not you know advance further in months. You you deal with travel agents,
3: and travel agents deal with customers, but there's also a, a psychological aspect to this, because. You know, they can say we've got a patch; everything is fine. But will people really believe that, or will people be wary about getting on these planes?
5: I think there's always going to be some uncertainty where flying is concerned. Some people are are more, you know, scared than others per se. But I, I think that you know, there's always testing involved. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful that once they do find a solution, that they're they're going to do some significant testing before they're they're allowed to release the suspension and have these planes flying again.
1: That was Mary Jane Hebert, chair of the Association of Canadian Travel Agencies. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday afternoon, members of the Commons Justice Committee met to decide whether to recall Jody Wilson-Raybould, who said she has a lot more to say publicly on the SNC-Lavalin affair, but needs a waiver in order to open up about the rest of her truth. But the liberal majority on the committee shut the initiative down and ended up voting to adjourn the meeting just a few minutes after After it started, because another meeting was already on the calendar for this coming Tuesday behind closed doors on budget day, conservatives and New Democrats on the committee yelled out shame, despicable and cover up. As the meeting was adjourned, Libby Zneimer spoke about this with Justice Committee member Conservative MP Michael Barrett and NDP Justice Critic and Vice Chair of the Justice Committee MP Murray Rankin.
0: I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I was because, you know, the whole world was watching. <laughs> that is to say it wasn't done in private. People could observe this ridiculous behavior. We're going to do it all again on budget day where they hope they can contain it and nobody will be watching. I don't think that's going to work either. I mean, we have a problem here. We have a government that seems to not want Canadians to get to the bottom of whether or not our independent attorney general was told what to do by political masters. And, and, and by not doing so, it seems to have been turfed out of her job. Like, to me, that's something that smacks of a banana republic behavior, and I'm shocked that uh, the Liberals think they can just, you know, contain the damage at this committee and uh, and move on. I don't think they're going to be able to.
3: Michael Barrett, am I being too harsh to me, it looks like the amateur hour. Yeah, it was ham-fisted.
6: It was, you know, it's truly disgusting when, uh, you know, uh, we we all come to Ottawa, we all are elected by our constituents, and I believe that everyone goes with the best interests, of, of Canadians and their constituents uh, in their heart, and that's what they want to do. But yesterday wasn't the action of, of independent MPs. it was uh, a, an MP who put the motion forward who's, who was there to deliver a message from the PMO that they're looking to to slam the door on debate, to slam the gavel down on on openness and transparency. and it was it, tremendously disappointing and they're hoping that just like with the other meetings when they announced a a trip to the moon and on another meeting they announced National Pharmacare and on another meeting they announced pardons for pot possession and this coming Tuesday they're going to have a, uh, it's going to be a big day, the the budget in an election year, um, start to see a pattern and it's a pattern of a cover-up and they're doing an absolutely terrible job of it.
3: Murray Rankin, I've heard from a lot of people who are so-called soft liberals who say, hmm, they're not going to vote again because of this.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't know. I'm not running again. Uh, I've announced I'm not running. So I'm um, I'm a f- old law professor who used to teach about rule of law and care deeply about it. So I'm not doing this from a partisan point of view, Libby. I mean, take that with a grain of salt if you wish, but I honestly believe that people should find out whether there is this kind of interference with our administration of justice. I think it's a big deal, and I don't think it's a, a liberal issue or a conservative issue. It's a Canadian issue, and we've got to get to the Bottom of it,
3: Michael Barrett.
0: Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm inclined to agree because when we
6: invited uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould to this committee, uh, the Conservatives and NDP called for this. She's a member of the Liberal caucus. You know, she she's not sitting as an independent. We had no expectation that she was going going to uh, do do any political or partisan favors for the opposition parties. This is an exercise in uncovering the truth. And what I'm hearing from my constituents. And what I'm hearing as a member of the Justice Committee, through correspondence from people across the country, is that they are shocked with what is happening and that they are demanding that we get to the bottom of it.
3: Hmm. And uh, what purpose do you think the behind-closed-door meeting will serve? I mean, presumably, uh, the idea of bringing her is going to be overruled again unless somebody knocks some sense into them.
6: Well, Mr. Mr. Druin, who, who the member for uh, Glengarry Prescott-Russell, who subbed in yesterday and was the one who, uh, who, t- who put the motion forward that the meeting be adjourned, um, he has been doing the rounds today and saying that uh, he, he believes that we've heard enough from Jody Wilson-Raybould and the committee should get on to more important work like dis- discussing or studying the separation of the role of attorney general and justice minister, which is absolutely just an attempt to change the channel. And uh, but I do think that it does a telegraph for us what we can expect coming out of that meeting. And that's not an invitation to Miss Wilson-Raybould or a request for the prime minister to extend the order in council and remove the gag from the former attorney general.
3: And if that's how it plays out, how does this story uh, how does this issue stay alive? I mean,
0: the issue is going to stay alive because we're going to continue to hammer the government in question period. We're going to use every opportunity in the House to make sure people don't forget about it. And, of course, the media, reflecting what people in Canada are telling them, are obviously going to be doing their part as well. I mean, that's how these issues uh, fester and then come to a boil again. And if it comes to a boil near the election, the Liberals have only themselves to blame.
1: That was conservative MP Michael Barrett and NDP justice critic MP Murray Rankin. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. One of the most heated topics here at Fight Back are bike lanes, the Bloor Street bike lanes. They were made permanent about a year ago, and now cycling advocates want to have them expanded. Representatives with Cycle Toronto claim the Bloor Lanes are some of the busiest in North America. and estimate, cyclists made close to one million trips along the lanes between February 2018 and February 2019. And they're now calling on the city to extend the lanes from the Royal Ontario Museum to High Park. Councillor Stephen Holiday, Deputy Mayor for Toronto's West End, weighed in on this hot-button issue, along with environmental lawyer and the founder of Bell's On Bloor Advocacy Group, Albert Cole.
7: When we did a count uh, last year over a period of five days, we found there were actually up to six thousand on so six thousand cyclists per day. So we're talking forty thousand a week, and uh, it isn't um, sort of a you know a fair weather activity anymore even this uh, winter which was actually pretty mild December and January you know we'd have over 1500 cyclists a day so we're still seeing that uh, in the winter time that people are you know uh, cycling through the year and if they have bike lanes they feel a lot safer because it's not a question of trying to find a space with all the snow piled up on the curb so over the last you know over the last month I'm sure the numbers have been a bit down because you've got a lot of ice on the road but uh, otherwise we see that uh, cycling is now a, a year-round activity. Obviously, when the weather's nicer, we're going to get more cyclists.
3: Councillor Holliday, do these numbers uh, make the case for expanding the Bloor Street bike lanes?
8: Well, I think it's more about politics than anything else. I think it always has been that way. Um, we've had this fight you know, several times at council, and uh, I've got a very strong position on it. And uh, you know, I, I have to differ regardless of uh, how the math was extrapolated or the counts were used to pitch a case. Whenever I'm down there, what I see are bumper-to-bumper cars, and I see the odd bike go by. Um, I think I was last on that stretch of Bloor Street about two weeks ago when subway broke down, and I walked, uh, walked for a little while to try to bypass the, the uh, subway snarl, and I think I saw two cyclists in that span, and that was rush hour.
3: Well, that was, again, what Albert was saying. That was two weeks ago when we still had a lot of ice on the road.
8: Yeah, but I, I think with these things, is we have to recognize that the big thing with the Bloor Street bike lanes was that it was the conversion of live travel lanes into dedicated cycling infrastructure. So it reduced the road capacity for cars for both uh, the throughput and for parking. And so that was, you know, the big public policy question, but that condition exists 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And, uh, you know, I appreciate there, there are peak periods where there's a lot of people using the roads, cars, cyclists, and pedestrians, but that condition remains. And my biggest, uh, concern with this was, Bloor Street is a really important route in and out of the city if you uh, live on the outskirts like myself or my constituents. And uh, as that road becomes a less viable option for automobile travel, which a lot of people still use, uh, you know, it starts to disconnect people from the inner core of the city. And that's why I worry about it.
3: Albert, how do you respond to what Stephen is saying?
7: Well, there are a couple of obvious things there. I mean, the thing he hasn't, uh, Stephen hasn't mentioned is the subway. So, so we, we tend to react to what we see. So we see these bumper to bumper cars, and yet underneath those cars, there are a thousand people in each subway train. So we're moving a massive number of people in the subway train, but they don't get nearly enough as the same attention because we're not seeing them. Probably a mistake we made is putting the, the cars above ground. So we react to that. A second thing is that, I mean, our city is changing, and it has changed. So in recent polls, we've seen that 59% of people in Toronto, this is in Toronto, uh, say that their primary mode of, or they identify cycling, walking and transit as their primary mode. Uh, so I think our city policy needs to change to reflect that, that more people are, are walking, cycling and, uh, and uh, taking transit. We need to make it safe for them. Our city does have a vision zero road safety plan. Last year, sadly, um, five cyclists were killed. That's That number has not been exceeded since amalgamation in 1998. Uh, So this city has a Vision Zero road safety plan that includes uh, bike lanes. And yet uh, we're seeing these sorts of uh, numbers, not only deaths, but of course, uh, people that uh, have lost uh, limbs, have been seriously injured, will carry lifelong injuries. Uh, We say as a city we care about that. We need to uh, reflect that in what we do.
3: Councillor Holliday, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, really only that uh,
8: you know these these public policy decisions are tough and there's lots of layers to them um, they you know they begin with the the tactile the counting of things and and the condition and the shape of the road but it's I think it's also a part of how you think about the larger vision of the city over the long term but I guess what I would like to remind everybody is to constantly reality test things and to be critical of everything that you see and read um, and relate it back to your own experience you know does 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 this make sense about what you're seeing? Is this a change that that you like? And uh, to get involved with uh, local politics, to to speak your mind. Uh, The worst thing is when you have a a, a hearing about these type of things or a community council meeting or a public meeting and nobody says much.
7: Albert? We'd love to see the bike lanes go to High Park as soon as possible for the safety of, of the many people who want to cycle.
1: That was Counselor Stephen Holiday and Bells on Bloor founder Albert Cole. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fightback. Fightback with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Anthony in Niagara called to express his concerns about how the Trudeau liberals on the Justice Committee behaved this past week by not allowing Jody Wilson-Raybould to testify a second time.
6: Boy, oh boy, shame on those people. We talk about a banana republic. I think it's more like Putin and a government uh, like China that we're getting into right now. They're hiding something. There's got to be something like they would just why not just let it out. And at the end of the day, we know exactly where we stand and they'll continue on with their budgets or whatever the hell they want to do. Because right now, my neighbors are saying we have no government.
1: Charles in Dufferin County took us down memory lane when we chatted about the possibility of a Bloor bike lane extension.
0: I'm uh, 82 years old now, but I used to bicycle on Brewer Street from west of the High Park to east of the Don Valley. Uh, with my younger brother, when I was about twelve, there were streetcars. We were driving and we were bicycling in rush hour, and nobody bothered us. I think your big problem is speeding. I don't think anything else needs to be done about that road. Leave it the way it is. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: Great calls, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Cheryl in Toronto, who says we should use common sense when it comes to the Toronto budget.
5: I think our taxes should go up. We want to be a world-class city. We need to pay for it. In fact, I'd love to see them price out the budget with everything we used to have years ago, and I bet in the long run people would pay less because we wouldn't pay for all these extras for kids to do activities because in the old days...
1: Or if you have a comment, email us at, fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. You've been
0: listening to the best of Fightback with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Michelle Saunders. Technical producer, Justin Eacock.
3: Executive producer, Moses Neimer.